At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you have been with us the last few weeks, you know that we have been walking through 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13 in a sermon series we've called Mission Own. In in this series, we have seen how the Apostle Paul lays out his life and his example as someone who has owned the mission that Christ has invited him to participate in. Paul has owned it. And by looking at his life, we can see how we might own that mission as well, how we might live on mission for Christ, spreading everywhere the knowledge of him. We've been seeing this in the last several weeks, and today we're going to be in part four of that series, looking at chapter 12, verses 11 through 21. But before we look at those verses together, I want to relate to you an experience that I had a number of years ago when um, I spent the summer in Russia. It was 1995, and I went as a part of a team that was going to share the gospel on a university campus in the city of Volgograd. So we, we left that the wall had just come down and opportunity existed to share the gospel in places where it had been closed off for years and years and years. And so we spent the summer there. Now, when I, when I arrived, I didn't know what I would find in that city. I mean, after all, I grew up in the era of Rocky IV. Um, so Russia and the United States, that was anybody, anybody no, nobody my age here today. Okay, great. Um, but when you think about that, that era of life going there, like, what am I going to find when I get to Russia. Well, one of the things that surprised me was that something had preceded us into the city of Volgograd from the west. In other words, it got there ahead of us. What was it? Well, it was different aspects of Western culture. I remember distinctly sitting on the floor of a dorm room of a student that I had met, and he was introducing me to this great music by Ace of Bass, and then also Metallica. And I thought, wow, there are parts of our life that have gotten there. We went to the grocery store, and I saw hot dogs that were packaged in Kansas City, Missouri. I don't even want to think about how they got there or how long they had been in that package or on that shelf. Um, But there were parts of the West that had arrived there. But it wasn't just those things. There were other things. And I I was walking the streets, and I saw an an athletic store. In in the window of that store, there were T-shirts for Reebok. Now, Reebok was really big in the 90s. Remember the pump shoes, anybody? Um, it was really big. And so when I saw a Reebok shirt, I'm like, oh, look, they've got, they've got Reeboks here. But I noticed something odd about that shirt. It was Reebok spelled with three E's, R-E-E-E-B-O-K. And then I, I saw some Nikes that they had. And I thought, wow, that's a great price on those Nikes. The problem was they were more check marks than swooshes. And they had some great prices on CDs on the street, but the covers were all photo, photocopied instead of the original thing. And I began to realize that there were a number of knockoffs in this city, things that, that weren't exactly the authentic, real deal. And so we had to have a discerning eye. Now, I tell you that story, not just to relive a moment of my past, but I tell you that story because, again, in this section of Scripture, the Apostle Paul is comparing his ministry to the ministry of some imposters, some wolves in sheep's clothing, some people who purported to be Christian leaders, but in fact were just gathering people to themselves and, and not to Christ. 
And sadly, that same dynamic exists today. Inside of the church of today, there are those who are not trying to point people to Christ, but they are trying to point people to themselves. They are imposters. They are knockoffs. They are Christian leaders with three E's in their name. So how do we learn to be discerning of the leaders that are trying to influence us, even leaders inside of religious circles? Well, the way that you determine a fake is you have to know what the original looks like. And so when we think of determining the imposters of Christian leaders, we need to go and look at the supreme example of a Christian leader. Who is who? Jesus himself. If we want to recognize the real deal, we need to go back to the one who's leading this parade, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus would say of himself in John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He would say in that passage also that when he speaks his sheep hear his voice and they recognize it because they are his see friends if we want to recognize the real deal we need to remember what the real deal looks like the real deal looks like christ one who is willing to lay down his life for others but by god's grace it's not just jesus Jesus is certainly the one leading the parade, but by God's grace, he has given leaders to the church who are following him. People like the Apostle Paul, who the Apostle Paul would say, well, eventually I'll get there. The Apostle Paul would say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's what what Paul said. Paul said, I am following Jesus. Follow me as I follow him. What made Paul the real deal? What made Paul the real deal was that he was following Christ. Amen? Amen. So if we want to recognize a real deal Christian leader, we need to look to Christ first and then to others who are walking according to his commands. Now we see Paul lay out his his argument for how he is doing that inside of this entire section of Scripture. Today we're going to see another installment of that in part 4 as we look at verses 11 through 21. So if you've got a Bible, take it there and turn. I want to read these verses for us, and then after reading them, we'll back up and I'll make a couple of observations today. The Apostle Paul writes here and says this, says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and I got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, in all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. 
that perhaps there may be quarreling and jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented, or the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Now, friends, in those few verses today, I want us to see two things about the real deal Christian leader. The first thing I want us to see is this. The real deal leader pours out, not soaks up. Pours out, not soaks up. Now, again, in order to see this, we need to look at verses 11 through 18 in a little bit more depth. Remember, in this section, Paul is contrasting himself with the super apostles, those purported super apostles who said they were superior to Paul, those who were trying to gather an audience to themselves that weren't really pointing people to Christ at all, but were just trying to gain from them some advantage. Paul writes to them and and, and argues for the authenticity of his ministry. Well, how does he do that? How does Paul argue that he was the real deal? Well, it's interesting that he reminds them that he had lived out his ministry among them. He reminds them he had lived out his ministry among them. Remember, in the book of Acts, in chapter 18, we're told that Paul ministered there for 18 months. 18 months, Paul ministered in Corinth. Paul had unpacked his bags. Paul had moved into the neighborhood. Paul had, day by day, shared the gospel with this church. He had led many of them to faith. He had helped establish the church in that city before he moved on. Paul had lived out his ministry in their midst. And because of that, Paul says in in verse 11, he says, it's foolish for me to try to argue for the authenticity of my ministry because you know it. I didn't phone it in. I lived in your midst. You saw me each and every day because you were a front row attender to the ministry that occurred in this city, Paul says, you should be commending me to the false apostles, the super apostles. Instead, you're siding with them? Paul says this doesn't make any sense. Now, Paul goes on to say that though they had been a front row seat participant, Paul says, but I really don't want this to be about me. That's why he says he's being a fool. He doesn't want this to be about me. Paul says, I am, I am nothing, but I am following Christ. And you should have seen that. You should have known that. Now, what's interesting is that he goes on and he says that his ministry was attested to by signs and wonders among them. Paul had apparently performed some miracles during his stay of ministry in the city of Corinth. Now, what's interesting about this is that none of the miracles that Paul says that he did in Corinth here in chapter 12 are recorded in Acts chapter 18. So, what gives? Well, again, let's remember, the book of Acts is is just representative. It's not comprehensive. And when Paul ministered in other cities, it talked about how Paul raised the dead, how Paul healed the sick, how Paul cast out demons. Paul had done these things in different locations, though it doesn't mention any of those things happening in Corinth. I think it was because of the economy and the argument of the book of Acts, not because they did not occur. Because when we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it it, it tells us that Paul had performed these signs in their midst. He said, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. 
Now, it's interesting that he says here that these are the signs of a true apostle. Who were the apostles? Well, we're talking here about the 11 plus Paul. They were those who were commissioned by Christ and sent out to take the gospel around the Mediterranean Sea and and to the ends of the earth. This group, as they went, uh, dealt with some challenges. One of the chief challenges was that Jesus had just been crucified. Resurrected, yes, but he had just been crucified. And so people might have wondered, is, are these people really connected to Christ? Well, in order for that ministry to be authenticated, Jesus had sent a number of miraculous gifts in a very special way through these apostles to let the world know that the church was still being built by Christ. This is what is talked about in places like Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, where it's talking about the historical era of the church that was the first century. It says, in that era, there is a foundation that was built upon the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The apostles, Paul among them, were used by God to establish the church in the first century. And in order to authenticate their ministry, miracles accompanied their work. This is what is talked about in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So God had attested the work of the apostles. He had attested the work of Paul in Corinth by accompanying it with miracles. And Paul said, you had a front row seat. You should remember that. You should know that. But Paul continues. He also reminds them that he held nothing back, that they got the full apostolic experience, that they got the full planting of a church with everything Paul had to offer. He says in verse 13, for in what way were you less favored than the rest of the churches? Paul says, I gave you all of my good stuff. You know, Philippi has nothing on you. Thessalonica, nothing on you. Ephesus, nothing on you. Corinthians, you got the good stuff. You got all of me. I poured out my heart in your city for 18 months with a ministry that was attested by signs and wonders. Nothing was held back. You should know. You should be commending me because of what has occurred. Now, after that introduction, Paul moves on to to talk about the generous love that he had shown the Corinthians. Now, this generous love involved Paul's ministry, but it also involved Paul's finances. And so he reminds them that that he had persisted through hard times. I love what it says in verse 12. It says that these signs and wonders were performed among you with utmost patience. What's he talking about? Well, remember a couple of weeks ago when we looked in chapter 11 at the, at the, the, the long list of difficulties that Paul had endured as he ministered for Christ? Paul did not allow those hardships to deter him from continuing to minister to the Corinthians. Paul said, with great patience and perseverance, he had persisted in ministry among them because of his love for them. 
While he was among them, he did not gain a salary from them. Instead, he worked as a tent maker. We see this in, in verses, uh, verse 13 of chapter 12 when he says, I myself did not burden you. What he was saying was, I did not draw a salary from you. I did not pass an offering basket and take from that basket to pay my own expenses. Paul instead chose to work in the city of Corinth to pay his own bills. That's what we see in Acts chapter 18, verse 3, when it says that Paul worked with Priscilla and Aquila as a tent maker to make money to fund his ministry in that city. Now, why did Paul do it this way? Why did he do this? Well, he did this because he didn't want their stuff. And he didn't want them to be confused. He didn't want their stuff. He wanted them. He wanted them. The Corinthians were a wealthy place. And no doubt, many people tried to leverage this wealthy people to get their stuff. But Paul set his ministry apart by saying, I was not after your stuff. Instead, I was after you. It says in verse 14, Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. He goes further. He says, like a parent to their children. That was Paul's perspective. He did not want them to take care of him. He was there to care for their needs. He wanted something for them. He did not want something from them. Not only this, but Paul goes on to say that he would gladly spend and be spent for them. One of the most beautiful sentences about ministry is right here in verse 15. I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Friends, what was Paul saying? He would gladly spend. He gladly worked a job as a tent maker. He gladly spent of his own dollars to care for the church in Corinth. But not only did he gladly spend his money, his life was spent he gladly poured out his availability. He poured out the gifts that God had given him. He poured out his insight. He poured out his time so that this group of people might grow in their relationship with Christ. And he did this because he loved them. Now, when it, you see these things, he, he didn't want their stuff. He wanted them. He would gladly spend and be spent for them. Who does that sound like? Not just Paul, but that sounds like who? It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant, coming and being willing to go all the way to the cross to die for our sins. Jesus spent and Jesus gave his life, not for our stuff, but for our souls, for our hearts. Paul points out the resemblance in his ministry to Christ's as he talks about this. And it's no accident because Paul was following Jesus. And then he mentions how this was something that had played out consistently. In other words, Paul didn't at one moment have an a integrity and at another moment he didn't have it. But Paul consistently had integrity, especially in his use of money. It's really interesting what happens in verses 16 to 18. Paul is probably referencing an argument that the false apostles were using against him. And, and this group was, was saying something like this. Paul may tell you he's not taking money from you, but didn't he just ask you to give money that you were going to take to this, this 
poor group in Jerusalem. If you're with us last summer, we looked at chapters, you know, the middle chapters of the, of the book of 2 Corinthians, where it talked about an offering being collected to take to the poor saints in Jerusalem. The, the argument was, was being made by the, Paul's opponents that perhaps Paul was just using that as a ruse. He was being deceitful. He was going to have Titus come and, and collect this offering, and then Paul was going to skim some off the top or maybe take the whole thing. But Paul writes and, and says to them, that's not what has happened at all. Myself, Titus, everybody engaged in this ministry with me, we all have been consistent in just wanting something for you, not wanting something from you. So we see Paul arguing again for the authenticity of his ministry. And this stands in great contrast to those super apostles, those fake apostles. Paul is going to allude to them at various points inside of the letter. Think back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17 when Paul said, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The fake apostles were selling their sermons to the highest bidder. But Paul instead was commissioned by God in the sight of God speaking his truth. Chapter 4 and verse 2, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul was showing the contrast. They were accusing him of being deceitful, but it was the fake apostles who were the ones who were being deceitful. Paul was arguing for the authenticity of his ministry. He was arguing that he was the real deal as he was following Christ. And the whole point here, friends, shows the difference between the fake apostles who wanted to soak up the resources, who wanted to soak up the adulation of the Corinthians, and the true apostle, the true servant of God, who instead was willing to pour out his life for their growth and for their good. So, when we think about being the real deal, a couple of ways that we might think about applying this. The first one, the first direction, has to do with ministry leaders. How do we evaluate ministry leaders? Certainly, here within the, the congregation, how, how, how might you evaluate me? How might you evaluate others on our team? But also, how do we evaluate those other voices that are vying for our attention in the world today? Well, a couple of things. The first thing I would say is, what is their track record? What is their track record? You know, the Apostle Paul, when he's talking here, um, he reminds them of his ministry in their midst. They had personal experience with him. They had seen the way he had interacted with them. They, they, they saw how he cared for them. They, they heard what he taught. They saw what God did through his ministry, and that gave them some confidence to listen to what he had to say. You know, in today's day and age, oftentimes there are lots of voices at great distances that we listen to, but those voices at great distance, we sometimes don't really know them. We don't know the, 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 the content of their lives, the, the depth of their character, there's an, an aspect and an argument here for local leadership, for you to be involved in a, a church family where you get to see and get to know those who are leading you so that you might evaluate based on the content of their character, are they truly following Christ? 
One thing that we see here is, is that Paul lifts his life up and his track record up as part of the evaluation. The second thing, though, is this. Do, do ministry leaders think that they are something? They think they're something. Paul said, I am nothing. But in today's day and age, as there was in Paul's day, there are ministry leaders who think that they are something. And they think that everybody ought to, to honor them as something. And they want all of the praise and all of the adulation and all of the honor. Now, now to be clear, it is, it's a wonderful thing as a pastor to be a part of a congregation that supports you. And I, I, I feel that from you. Um, but friends, don't ever let me think that I'm something. Because like Paul, I'm nothing. Apart from the grace of God, apart what he, from what he is doing, really we have nothing to offer. So when we evaluate ministry leaders, what is their track record? And, and beware of those who think that there's something. But a second thing that we would see is, is for us, for all of us, not just those who are in vocational ministry, but for those that want to own the mission and serve those around them. What do we take from this passage? Well, the first thing I would say is just to ask you, is your ministry for them or for you? When you have said yes to serve in some capacity, did you say yes to serve because of, of something that you need for you? Some kind of a, 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 an ego stroke, for something for a resume? Are, are you serving for, for you and something you might get out of it? Or are you serving for others so that they might be blessed? Friends, whatever your serving role, may we ask of ourselves as we go to that serving role, am I showing up today to be a blessing to others or am I showing up today to fill some hole in my own soul? And second, what does it cost you? What does it cost you? Paul said he would gladly spend and be spent. It cost him money. It cost him time. It cost him energy. It cost him opportunity. His ministry cost him something. And it just makes me ask the question for myself and for all of us, what does our ministry cost us? Because we have said yes to serving, there are burdens that we carry. Because we have said yes to serving, our, our, our schedule is, is bound in some ways. Because we have said yes to serving, we, we, are, we are contributing of our own finances to help fund some of those opportunities. It costs us something. But friends, it's always worth it. I, I love what C.T. Studd said. C.T. Studd was a, a missionary from England to the Congo. And C.T. Studd said this. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Studd walked away from a professional sports career. Studd walked away from all kinds of wealth and privilege and honor in order to serve Christ in the Congo. And when he asked about it, he said, there is no sacrifice too great for me to make for Christ based on who he is. Friends, when we think about applying this, we need to think about ministry. The real deal is pouring out, not soaking up. But there's a second thing that we need to see in these verses. And that second thing we need to see is this, the fears of the faithful. And by the faithful, I mean the real deal Minister, the real deal person who is pouring out their lives for others. There are some things that, that that person is concerned about. There are some fears that they have. And Paul details those in verses 19 through 21. So what are they? I think there's three different concerns that he brings up. 
The first concern that he brings up is that he wants us to know that he is living for the Lord. He's living for the Lord. Verse 19, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. What what was Paul saying there? Paul says, "I, I don't want you Corinthians to think that because I'm providing this defense that I'm doing so so that you will think that I'm awesome. Paul says, I'm providing a defense because I want you to follow me because I'm following Christ and they are not. I want you to follow Jesus. This is about the building up of their faith, not the building up of Paul's ego. When we think about a concern that we might have, it is that we would be living for us and not for them. And this is the primary concern that Paul says, that their faith would be built up and not his ego. There's a second fear that he expresses, and he expresses this in verse 20. It is the fear of disunity. He says, for I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. What's Paul saying here? Well, what Paul is saying here is is he says, when I show up, I'm afraid that I'm not going to find you the way that I want to find you. And, and that was that they would be walking with God and that they would be together as a congregation. Paul says, I'm afraid that when I show up, you're not going to be who I hope that you're going to be. And then he says, and because of that, I think that I might be who you don't want me to be. And that is angry and upset and sad. Paul says, I don't want to show up that way, but I also don't want to find you that way. Because what Paul anticipated when he showed up was that there would be a number of sins that were leading to the disunity of the church. Those sins are mentioned here specifically. Quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. The primary concern here is the unity of the church. And it is, is the unity of the church important? I mean, is the unity of the church important? Absolutely it's important. How important is it? The longest prayer that Jesus prayed was for what? It was for the unity of the church in John chapter 17. He prayed that we would be one even as he and the Father are one. Now that is a a degree of oneness that goes beyond what we know and understand. And yet we have a flesh We have sin. We have desires to rank ourselves as better or worse than others. We 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 long to to, to build ourselves up or or just to talk about other people's sin instead of talking to them about it, seeking to entertain ourselves through the hardships of others rather than helping them make progress, to complain about things instead of being part of the solution. There is a part of our flesh that wants to cause us to rank and to tear down, and to separate. And Paul was afraid that that part would be on display when he arrived. He was concerned with the unity of the church, and so he calls them to deal with the things that would lead to disunity. The third fear that Paul mentions is the fear of the toleration of sin. We see this in verse 21. He says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, the sexual immorality, and the sensuality that they 
have practiced. There was a lot of sexual sin that was occurring in the city of Corinth. There were affairs that were happening. There was inappropriate sexual relationships. There was homosexual activity. There was temple prostitution. There was all kinds of deviance that was happening in this city. And Paul said, I'm just afraid that when I show up, that that is what we're going to have to talk about, that that is what we're going to have to deal with. And Paul writes this letter in advance basically to put them on notice and say, hey, repent of that stuff before I arrive. If you don't want this to be a tense moment between us, there's a way out of this, and that is for you to follow Christ, to repent of your sin and to walk in his direction instead. Paul's primary concern here was the repentance of the church It was that they would turn, not that he would be able to express his disgust, but that they would actually follow Christ. And so when we think of applying these in our own lives, I want to to talk about us owning the mission with these three fears in mind. If we are to own the mission, if we are to follow Christ, what would be the things that we would be concerned with? First thing. Are we interested in building their faith or building our ego? Second, don't contribute toward the disunity in the church. Don't do it. Turn away from that activity. You know, oftentimes someone will say something to us and we have that split second moment. Am I going to engage in this conversation that is ultimately going to tear down another, or am I going to walk away from it? Or you're sitting at your keyboard. Am I going to send this tweet, this text, this post that is going to do nothing but but tear apart the church rather than bring people together in Christ? Think long and hard in those moments, friends. Turn away from the temptation to tear apart the church that Christ died to unite. Third, Repent of known sin now. Repent of known sin now. Friends, as a, as a pastor, when I read Paul's words here, they resonate so much with me. I can, I can honestly tell you, friends, that, that as a pastor, I do not relish ever confronting people in their sin. I don't relish it. It's not like, it's not what gets me up in the morning, right? And I can promise you the same thing is true of your small group leader. I promise you the same thing is true of your ministry team leader. The same thing is true of your brothers and sisters in Christ who are around you. They don't relish the opportunity of challenging you in open and unrepentant sin. So what does that mean? Friends, allow verses like this to prompt you to repent now of the sin that you are entertaining, to walk away from the affair, to walk away from the addiction to pornography, to, to, to break off those things that you are indulging right now that ultimately will lead to lots of pain between you and your spouse, between you and your kids. It is a train wreck that we are watching tr- unfold in front of us. Don't wait for someone to come up and tell you to knock it off. Allow the Spirit of God in your soul to convict you and turn to him. And then go and talk to your pastor. Then go and talk to your small group. And I promise you, they will come around you and they will help you. But you need to right now turn back to him. 
May we be a place that pursues not only the unity of the church, but also a place that repents of the sin that we are harboring in our midst. See, these are some of the fears of the faithful. One last thing. It's a great quote by Kent Hughes, basically summarizing this passage. And this is what he says. He says, love the church, serve her, spend and be spent. Seek souls and your heart will know an index of fears unknown to the uncommitted heart. I had somebody ask me about this in the first service. Let me just offer one word of explanation. What he is saying is when we are committed to the things that Christ has committed to, we'll be aware of and pained by the disunity in the church. We will be aware of and pained by unrepentant sin. But he goes on and he says, but you will also know joys that are unknown to the self-serving. Friends, it costs us something, but it is absolutely worth it. May we own the mission and follow Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your calling. Thank you for your love that invites us into a relationship with you. Lord, I I pray that we would be a people that do repent, that in light of your grace, in light of who you are and all that you have done, that we we would turn from our ways and that we would follow you. We would find in you our forgiveness, but we also would find in you our Lord and our life. Lord, may we be a people who own this mission and are used by you as your mouthpiece, as Paul was, to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.